This is an Odyssey original. This is the War in Ukraine Daily. I'm Charles Feldman. And I'm Mike Simpson from the KNX Odyssey Studios in Los Angeles. Before Russia launched its invasion of Ukraine, it's been rattling the nuclear saber from Vladimir Putin on down. Subtle and not-so-subtle warnings from Russian politicians and generals about interference with the war, possibly leading to an exchange of nuclear weapons. Once again, uh, Russia's illusions to the use of those kind of weapons back in the news this time. The longtime foreign minister dropping the hint. We'll look into whether he's serious or just bluffing and we'll talk to a human rights activist in Kyiv monitoring the humanitarian corridors to find out if Russia is allowing safe travel for aid workers and civilians. But we start with Russia's doomsday fixation. Russia's again raising the specter of nuclear war. The country's top diplomat warning that those who underestimate that possibility says that the threat of the Ukraine war sparking a nuclear conflict is serious. Now this came as Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin said the U.S. wants to see Russia weakened. With us is Jim Walsh, international security and nuclear weapons policy expert and senior research associate at MIT's Security Studies Program. So, uh, Jim, how serious should we take these comments? Well, I, I think we have to take it seriously, but not because the Russians are saying it. Although if people are saying it, you should at least pay attention. It would be a bad situation if people were talking about nuclear war and you weren't paying attention. But I think the pattern so far has been to make sort of extravagant threats that were not seen as really credible threats. You'll remember they went on hot, what they called higher alert. The U.S. didn't respond to that. It stayed where it was. That was the right choice. So there's part of this is uh, signaling and, and sort of propaganda. But if you step back away from that, and look at it from you know 30,000 feet. The fact of the matter is, Russia has 45% of the world's nuclear weapons. They are in a major land war on the doorstep of NATO, which is protected by US uh, and other nuclear weapons. And if you were just looking at it from a plane, you'd say, wow, that's, that's not good. And you'd be right. The CIA director, Bill Burns, for whom I have a tremendous amount of respect, gave a talk at Georgia Tech, I guess, less than a week ago, and he was asked about it. And he said, I think what most experts think, which is the risk is real. Now, it doesn't mean it's likely, but the consequences for any use of nuclear weapons would be so large that even a, a increasing risk or a small risk would be bad. And here, the sort of scenario is Putin gets himself twisted in some sort of situation where he is facing a massive defeat and feels like his future and Russia's future depends on what happens, and he's put and he goes for it. Then, during you know during the Cold War, it was U.S. policy to go to nuclear first if we were losing a conventional battle. And so, do I think that's going to happen? No. But has everyone been surprised so far? Yes. So you got to be you know you got to pay attention here yeah. and take the warning. We do hope everyone understands, though, you know, people who have these arsenals, that that this ends the world, right? Nobody wins a nuclear war. We all we all die. Well, we know you're right to say no one wins a nuclear war, but people obviously are able to tell themselves stories, right? About if they do this, something else will happen, and it all ends well. And so, as long as you have the weapons you know, then you run the risk that they'll eventually be used. We've had several near misses, Cuban Missile Crisis, Taiwan Straits Crisis, 
Berlin crisis. And we were doing a great job of sort of reducing nuclear risk. We built this whole system and we were actually doing better than people expected. But then once the Cold War ended, I think everyone moved on. I mean, if you were alive in the 1980s, that was one thing. You, that was a real deal. But now, you know, people think it's important, but they don't feel connected to it. When really in the past, people did quite a bit. We had quite a bit of success. And now we are being reminded what happens if you uh, sort of fall asleep at the wheel and there's real danger. But uh, here's, I guess, what I'm having trouble understanding. Maybe you can help me out on this. Uh, So early on in this conflict, uh, President Biden made it very clear that he did not want this to become, and NATO said the same thing, right? Uh, he didn't right. want this to become a direct confrontation between the U.S. or, or NATO and, and Russia. Now, t- the other day or today, you have the administration saying the aim uh, now is to see a weakened, militarily weakened yeah. Russia. Doesn't that, yeah. doesn't that now sort of fall into Vladimir Putin's playbook where he yeah. is saying this is all along been about trying to diminish Russia. Doesn't that bring us that much closer now to a direct confrontation? Well, it doesn't help. You know, I think everyone thinks it, but he said the quiet part out loud. You know, <laughs> I, 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 I hate to see the, I hope the war stops tomorrow and Russia withdraws. But as long as it has invaded another sovereign country, then its military assets are open you know, game and according to the laws of war. And, uh, you know, you could certainly imagine a logic that goes, the more he spends those resources here and poorly, the less he'll be able to do elsewhere and the longer it's going to take him to get his act together if he gets it together. So I totally get the tactical objective, but you are 100% right. You don't want to feed that narrative. Um, But you know, that's basically what everyone was doing anyway, I think. Jim Walsh, international security, nuclear weapons policy expert, uh, senior research associate, MIT. Millions of people have now left Ukraine to escape the war. Even more Ukrainians staying in the country, forced to abandon their homes and cities to avoid the Russian military. Many who are staying are taking big and small actions to help those around them. Alexandra Matvichuk is director of the Kyiv-based Center for Civil Liberties. Her organization has been focused on tracking which humanitarian corridors are open and safe for aid workers to transport supplies and for civilians to escape. Alexandra is with us now from Kyiv. Thank you, Alexandra, for talking with us. So how many of these corridors have actually been established and how many have been successfully used to evacuate stranded civilians? When we speak about humanitarian corridors, uh, who has to be opened according to the standard of International Committee of Red Cross. Uh, I can say that for the whole period of, from this uh, large uh, scale Russian invasion, Russia provides permission for only two such kind of humanitarian corridors to International Committee of Red Cross, one from Sumy and second from Berdyansk. All other humanitarian corridors which were provided and negotiated uh, with the Ukrainian side and Russian side uh, faced with a lot of risk and was uh, heavily uh, shelled uh, very regularly by Russian troops. That's why we have such more casualties among civilians. I I was going to say, I mean, how do you convince people 
to try to, to flee in a corridor when they know, I presume, that the consequences could be very dire. Yes, it's a huge problem for local authorities because now we expect it to have a battle in the east, in the Nyetsk and Lugan regions, and local authorities asked people to evacuate it. But before this, we have this tragedy in Kramatorsk when Russians shelled the railway station where evacuation trainings are waiting, and five dozen people, among them several children, were died. And that's why people are afraid to evacuate. But to stay, it's also not a, not a solution. We saw what happened in Bucha, Matyzh, and Warsaw in Kiev region. So it's a huge risk to be occupied by Russian troops, and Russia used terror against civilians. Is there freedom of movement in many cases for people in the places that are occupied? I mean, if they wanted to try, and obviously, as we've just been discussing, it's not always safe to try to get out, but can they even, would they be allowed to by, by the occupation forces? No, as we saw from practice, the people have no right to leave this territory. For example, when we speak about Kyiv region, Russians don't provide opportunity to people uh, leave this area and they shelled civilian cars. And now there are, the international journalists uh, can see this uh, shelled car uh, where the, the families tried to escape but uh, were killed by Russian troops. I was reading an article, I believe it was the New York Times last week, that said that some people, uh, Ukrainians who left the country in the early days of the war, have decided to return. Is that the case? And is it to any uh, significant number? Yeah, we uh, have a number, but I couldn't provide you. I am I, afraid to be mistaken about, uh, of Ukrainians uh, who return. And I must admit that a lot of men are returned. Because before this large-scale um, Russian invasion, a lot of Ukrainians are work abroad in different countries, and now uh, they are not uh, couldn't stay indifferent, and they return to Ukraine in order to be with Ukrainian people in this dramatic time of history and to provide their own input into general struggle. Supplies. We've heard so much about shortages of certain types of medication, other types of things that are desperately needed. How are things on that uh, front? It depends on territory, because uh, when we speak about uh, uh, isolated towns, they have problems with medical and other humanitarian assistance. The bright examples is Mariupol, because it's a military tactics of Russia how to quickly obtain control over the city. They deliberate um, destroyed the critical uh, civil infrastructure, deprived people of uh, uh, electricity, water, light, they destroyed the residential buildings. They uh, moved, They put people to be in basement for weeks uh, without medical and other kind of assistance and don't allow them to, to evacuate from the city. It's all military goal in order to provide enormous pain among civilian and civilians and stop the resistance of locals. And this tactics is prohibited by international humanitarian law. I'm curious, what did you do before the war? What were you, uh, what was your occupation? I'm a human rights defender. I've, I spent 20 years of my life to protect human rights. And uh, before this large Russia, scale Russian invasion, 
my organization, Center for Civil Liberties, we are working on two fronts. The first, we push Ukrainian authorities to provide democratic reforms and to build stable democratic institutions like independent judiciary, like effective police, etc. And second, for all these eight years, we have been documenting war crimes in Donbas and Crimea, which were temporarily occupied by Russia. Do you think that the Russians will be held accountable for the crimes we've seen since? We, I, I'm not predict a future. I am a people who try to create this future. And I tell you that we do our best and hundreds and hundreds of people in Ukraine, lawyers and human rights defenders do our best in order to see Putin in international criminal court in Hague. Oleksandra, thank you so much for speaking to us. Thank you. Oleksandra Matvichuk, director of the Kiev-based Center for Civil Liberties. We do hope you stay safe and we can stay in touch. This is an Odyssey original. Find us and others on the Odyssey app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. Thank you.